All right, Second Kings chapter 23. Now tonight, uh, we're going to try to make it through the end of the book, and that means we're going to try to cover three chapters here tonight. Uh, if it just gets going too long or if my voice gives out, then we'll stop before the end of three chapters, but I don't think that's going to happen because I, I think you'll see how these three chapters belong together. You see, tonight is something unusual. We're going to cover the reign of five different kings of Judah. Now, you're used to the revolving door of kings when it comes to the northern kingdom of Israel. But at this time in the history of the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel had been taken away into captivity, into exile under the brutal Assyrian Empire some 100 years before the events that we're going to consider here in 2 Kings chapter 23. So let's take a look at it here. We, we ended it last time together with a look at the reforms of King Josiah, this remarkable reforming king. And we're going to study more about the reforms and the revival in his day, starting now, 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 1. Now the king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant." So I want you to notice that first what Josiah did when it was time to recommit the nation unto the Lord was he gathered together all the elders of Judah. Josiah heard the promise that we studied the last time in 2 Kings chapter 22 of the eventual judgment that was going to come upon the kingdom of Judah. But then God also graciously allowing for a delay in that judgment. And he didn't respond with indifference. He didn't say, well, if the judgment comes, it comes. What can I do about it? Or, or he did not respond with the contentment that he said, well, at least we're not going to see the judgment in my own day. He said, listen, if God has promised that judgment is going to come, and if God has spoken to me that we can have a delay in that judgment, then let's delay it for as long as possible. Let's get right with God. And so he, he knew that he could not do it all by himself. He knew that the kingdom getting right with God meant more than the king getting right with God. It had to be the elders. It had to be the leaders. It had to be the people themselves. And so what did he do to bring this sense of revival, this sense of restored relationship with the Lord to them? Look at verse 2. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book. Man, I love that. Did you see what it said? And he read in their hearing. King Josiah did this himself. He was so concerned that the nation would hear the word of God that he read it to them himself. Now, I can imagine that just like in any large gathering of people, when somebody is speaking to them, that there's some people who are going to be falling asleep or not paying attention or, you know, doing anything at any time. But, but Josiah was so concerned that the people hear the word of God that he read it to him personally. Now, I, I can guarantee you that people were more attentive to the king reading them the word of God himself than they would have been some priest or some other person doing it. 
And it says there that the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord. There in verse 3. King Josiah stood before the people and he publicly declared his commitment to obey the word of the Lord to the very best of his ability, as it says there, with all his heart and with all his soul. Did you remember that very dramatic moment at the end of the book of Joshua where Joshua calls the nation together and he says, listen, you do whatever you want, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is one of those kind of moments in the, in the nation's history. King Josiah stands before the nation and he goes, listen, I can't tell you what to do. I can't command you to make a heart commitment to God. But I am going to stand by this pillar in the temple and I am going to make this commitment to the Lord. And so it says there in verse 4, and all the people took a stand for the covenant. I want you to notice in these first three verses, all the times it's repeated, All the people, all the people, all the people. Excuse me, it's in verse 3 that it says, and all the people took a stand for the covenant. They did this in response to the example and the leadership of King Josiah. You see, again, he couldn't command them to do it. You can't command a heart commitment from people. But they did it spontaneously as they followed the king's example and his exhortation. And I, I just, again, just want you to see the words there in verse 3. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. Isn't that beautiful? Listen, that's what we call revival. When a large group of people are spontaneously touched by the Lord and spontaneously there's this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, not upon one person or two people or a sprinkling of people within a group, but where it seems that the Holy Spirit falls upon the whole group collectively. This kind of mass response and commitment to the Lord, it can't be commanded. But it doesn't mean that there's no part for man to play. It was clearly the work of God among the people, but it was through the example and the obedient leadership of King Josiah. He led the way. It wasn't like King Josiah had to say, well, listen, Lord, you know, if you want to touch the people, you're going to touch the people and there's nothing I can do about it. No, no, he couldn't command it. But there's a sense, and I hope I'm putting this right. I hope I'm choosing my words right. He could cultivate it. He, he could create an environment where the people were encouraged to do what they should do with their hearts. He couldn't make them do it, but, but he could lead them towards it. And the fact that this happened among all the people means that this was a special work of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that there are times in which the Holy Spirit comes upon people as a group. And this is different than the individual filling of the Spirit. There are times when the Holy Spirit seems to be poured out upon a group, and I believe that we should pray for such a moving of the Holy Spirit today. For example, in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, it says, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And then in Acts chapter 10, verse 44, it says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. You get the idea here. The Holy Spirit falling upon a group of people as a whole. And this is what happened in the days of Josiah. The evidence is that all the people spontaneously responded with a commitment to this covenant. Well, with the king right with God, 
with the leadership right with God, with the people right with God, you would expect radical changes in the culture and the society of the southern kingdom of Judah, wouldn't you? And that's exactly what we see. Look at it here, starting at verse 4. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest, the priests of the second order, and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal, for Ashtoreth, and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them outside of Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. Then he removed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense on the high places in the cities of Judah and the places all around Jerusalem and those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations and to all the host of heaven. And he brought out the wooden image from the house of the Lord to the brook Kidron outside Jerusalem, burned it at the brook Kidron and ground it to ashes and threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. And he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the wooden image. And he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places at the gates where there the entrance to the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were to the left of the city gate. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. And he defied Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire to Molech. Then he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the officer who was in the court. That he burned the chariots of the sun with fire, the altars that were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. The king broke them down, pulverized there, and threw their dust in the brook Kidron. Then the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem, which were on the south side of the Mount of Corruption which Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, for Milcom, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he broke in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images and filled their places with the bones of men. Now that's 10 or 11 verses of radical reform. You can notice it all the way back in the first verse that I read there, verse four, where it says that he brought out of the temple of the Lord all of the articles that were made for Baal and for Ashtoreth and for the host of heaven. This shows us how deep the idolatry was in Judah. There were idols dedicated to Baal, to Ashtoreth, and to all the host of heaven in the very temple itself. Now, from this account, it seems that Josiah began the cleansing reforms at the center and worked outwards. Do you understand that? He went into the temple, which was the spiritual center of the nation, right? He said, let's clean that out first, and then the reforms radiated outward. Now, listen, isn't this exactly how God wants to work in our life? He doesn't work around the edges and then hope to change the inner man. God says, no, I'm going to put a new person within you. I'm going to make you a new creation. And then the cleanliness will radiate outwardly from there. This is God's pattern in all of his cleansing work. It says there, interestingly enough, too, that he threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. The idea was not that it would defile their graves, but that it would defile even the ashes of these idolatrous things that he had built. 
And then in verse 5, it says that he removed the idolatrous priests. Notice this, Josiah's reforms did not only remove sinful things, but also sinful people that promoted and permitted these sinful things. The idols that filled the temples didn't get there by themselves. They weren't dusted and maintained and cleaned by themselves. There were idolatrous priests who were responsible for these sinful practices. And listen, this is important. When it comes time to, to, to reform and to do things different in the house of God, you can't just deal with things. You have to deal with people as well. Any thorough reformation does not only deal with sinful things, it also has to deal with sinful people. If sinful people are not dealt with, they will quickly bring back the sinful things that were righteously removed. And so in verse 7, it says that he also tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons. Listen, supposedly here, this indicates for us that sacred prostitution was an integral part of these pagan idols and the temple had become a brothel. And King Josiah corrected this disgraceful perversion. We were uh, just in Paris yesterday touring with the pastor of the Calvary Chapel there, and he took us to one of these churches that had the great French Revolution, uh, which was a, a anti-God revolution in many ways. They went into this church. They cleared it out of all of its religious symbolism and religious artifacts, whatever you'd want to call it. And what they did was that they took a prostitute and enthroned her in that church as the goddess of reason. Well, I don't think that was even as bad as what they were doing in these days in Jerusalem. Because even though they took a prostitute and enthroned her as the goddess of reason, I don't think they allowed her to conduct her prostitute business within the church. But that was exactly what was happening in the days of, of, uh, of uh, King Josiah. And he put an end to it and took out the perverted persons. And so it says there in verses 10 and 11 that he defiled Topeth. He removed the horses uh, that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. He burned the chariots of the sun. The king broke down and pulverized. He broke in pieces the sacred pillar. It's just this massive, destructive work of cleansing. What this passage reveals to us is the extent of official idolatry in Judah. It was widespread it was elaborate, and it was heavily invested in. The previous kings and leaders of Judah had spent a lot of time and a lot of money honoring these pagan idols. And so it took a long, dedicated commitment on the part of King Josiah to do his work. And so he destroyed all these things, and he just ruined the worship of these pagan deities within the city of Jerusalem and in the kingdom of Judah. Now, verse 15, if that's not enough, he extends his reforms. He says, moreover, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place, which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made, both that altar and the high place he broke down. And he burned the high place and crushed it to powder and burned the wooden image. As Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were there on the mountain, and he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. Then he said, What gravestone is this that I see? So the men of the city told him, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things that you have done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, Let him alone. 
let no one move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. Now Josiah also took away all the shrines of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger. And he did to them according to all the deeds he had done in Bethel. He executed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned men's bones on them. And he returned to Jerusalem. I have to say this is remarkable. What it shows us is that he extended his reforms beyond the borders of the kingdom of Judah into what was formerly the northern kingdom of Israel. King Josiah was so diligent in his reforms that he went beyond his own boundaries. He removed the pagan altar at Bethel that Jeroboam had set up hundreds of years earlier. Now, just from a political standpoint, this was possible because the Assyrian Empire was weak in the days of Josiah. Josiah could intervene in this area that was subject to the Assyrian Empire because they were too concerned with other things, namely the rising power of the Babylonian Empire, that they couldn't stop him. Verse 17 says something that's very interesting. Did you see that? Where King Josiah says, What gravestone is this that I see? This is the remarkable fulfillment of a prophecy that was made hundreds of years earlier. The the words of this anonymous prophet are written down in 1 Kings chapter 13. Uh, Listen, that's hundreds of years before the time of King Josiah. And, And these are the words from 1 Kings chapter 13. Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you. And so Josiah was careful to honor the gravestone of this anonymous prophet who knew him by name hundreds of years before he was born. So we see him clearing out the old. But let me ask you something. When you're reforming, when you're getting right with God, when when revival is sweeping through the people of God, is it enough to carry out the bad? No, it's not enough just to clear out the bad, to cleanse the dirty. You also have to promote goodness. You have to do what is right. And so now we see in verse 21, then the king commanded all the people saying, keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. Such a Passover surely had never been held since the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was held before the Lord in Jerusalem. Now again, Josiah could not command heart obedience to the word of God, but he could establish a national holiday to celebrate the Passover. You know, Josiah was reading his Bible. And he saw in the book of Exodus and he saw in the other books of Moses that they were to celebrate the Passover unto the Lord. And he said, why aren't we doing this? And so he said, we're going to do it together as a nation. And as verse 22 says, such a Passover surely had never been held. The celebration of the Passover had become so neglected in Judah that this was a remarkable observance. Now, do you remember what Passover celebrates? It celebrates what we might call the central act of redemption in the Old Testament. That is God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt in the days of Moses. Their neglect of Passover proved 
that they neglected to remember God's work of redemption for them. It was as if a group of modern Christians had completely forgotten communion or the celebration of the Lord's Supper, which remembers Jesus's work of redemption for us. And so now verse 25 Moreover, Josiah put away those who consulted mediums and spiritists, the household gods and idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might perform the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Now before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. King Josiah fulfilled the commandment of God to put away those who practiced the occult and spiritism. His passion was to perform the words of the law which were written in the book. I have to say, the great reformation that we see in the days of Josiah is an example of simply going back to the word of God and saying, let's do what the Bible tells us to do. It was an Old Testament example of the Reformation principle of sola scriptura, the Bible only. Let's base our faith on what the Bible says, and let's do what the Bible says. So because of these things, as it says there in verse 25, there was no king like him. Josiah was one of the most remarkable kings of Judah, unique in the strength of his obedience and his commitment. He stands as a wonderful example of what a leader can be, and should be. There were other great kings of Judah and the United Kingdom of Israel. Listen, David was a great king, wasn't he? Hezekiah was a great king, wasn't he? Yet I think the thing that makes Josiah unique was the godliness that he had in his day. The days of David were not as wicked as the days of Josiah. The days of Hezekiah were bad, but not as wicked as the days of Josiah. Therefore, he lived in a remarkably wicked time, so his godliness was even more remarkable against the backdrop of his time. Uh, Nevertheless, not long after his reign, Judah was severely judged by the Lord. We'll get into that later tonight. This shows us something. This shows us that despite all of Josiah's effort, there was an outward conformity, an outward obedience among the people of Judah, yet their hearts were not changed in the long term towards the Lord. Let me remind you of another thing that indicates this. Jeremiah. Jeremiah ministered in the days of Josiah, and his message to the people of, of Judah shows this. Through Jeremiah, God promised that if the people genuinely turned to the Lord, that they would dwell in the land securely. Nevertheless, the Lord looked at the people of Judah and said through Jeremiah the prophet, this is Jeremiah 3.10, Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. And so you have to say, that even though this revival, even though this reformation was real in the heart of Josiah and real in the heart of some, it was not real in the heart of the nation as a whole. And that effect is going to be seen in the coming chapters. That's why we see here in verse 26, Nevertheless, 
The Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, with which his anger was aroused against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. Remember Manasseh? He was two kings before. Anyway, going on. And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen and the house of which I have said, my name shall be there. God did not turn from his wrath because despite Josiah's great godliness, despite his righteous example and leadership, the people of Judah still provoked him. They loved the sins introduced during the days of wickedness under Manasseh, Josiah's father. I have to say that when I look at uh, Josiah and his reform, I think it's a remarkable example of how people can turn to God on the outside, but not on the inside. And therefore God says in verse 27, I will also remove Judah from my sight. God promised to bring Judah low, conquering them by another uh, nation and sending them into exile. Now, we know this isn't going to happen during the days of Josiah, right? Because God made that promise to him. But let's see the end of Josiah beginning here at verse 28. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? In his day, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went to the aid of the king of Assyria, to the river Euphrates, and King Josiah went out against him. And Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo when he confronted him. Then his servants moved his body in a chariot from Megiddo, brought him to Jerusalem, and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoaz, the son of Josiah, anointed him, and made him king in his father's place. This conflict between Josiah and Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, this was part of the geopolitical struggle between the declining Assyrian Empire and the emerging Babylonian Empire. The Assyrians made an alliance with the Egyptians to protect against the growing power of the Babylonians. But Josiah went out against the king of the Egyptians. Actually, 2 Chronicles chapter 35 tells us more about this. It tells us that Pharaoh warned Josiah against battling against him. He said this, What have I to do to you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verses 20 through 25, where the king of Egypt, Pharaoh Necho, told Josiah, Listen, don't get involved in this battle. It's not your business. Yet Josiah stubbornly refused to hear this warning, which was actually a warning from God. And he disguised himself when he went into battle. Yet he was still shot by archers and died. I have to say, this was a sad end to one of the greatest kings of Judah. The exact place of the battle seems to be in the Valley of Megiddo, the place that we call or refer to the Battle of Armageddon being fought there. And verse 30 tells us that the people of the land took Jehoaz, the son of Josiah, anointed him and made him king in his father's place. We have to note something here. The regular succession to the throne ceased with 
the departure of Josiah. Normally, you know how it works in a monarchy, right? Who succeeds the king? The oldest son of the king, right? Jehoahaz, described in verse 30, was not the oldest son of the late king. Johanan and Jehoiakim, described in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 15, were both older than him. He was a younger son who was made king by popular choice. He was the preference of the people, not the appointment of God. Remember what I said about the revival not being deep in the heart of the people? Therefore, the people skipped over two older sons of Josiah, and they said, we want Jehoahaz to be king. Now, let me just give you a a warning here. What do you think the character of Jehoahaz is going to be? Do you think he's going to be godly like his father Josiah? Do you think that's why the people picked him? I don't think so. Look at here, verse 31. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Now, this is sad. I mean, here you have this great King Josiah who was an awesome man in his commitment to the Lord and his furthering of reform in Judah as much as he possibly could. He he couldn't make the peoples change their hearts in a deep way, but he did whatever he could. And yet we have this very tragic end to this great life, right? Meddling in an issue that he shouldn't have meddled in. He, He should have never gone to battle against Pharaoh Necho. And God tried to warn him against doing that. But, but sometimes great men at the end of their life, at the end of their ministry, they, they, they have a way of getting involved in arguments or disputes or battles that that they should have no business getting mixed up in. And, And it can be sort of a sour note at the end of a great you know, symphony of a life, of a ministry. We don't want to say that, that Josiah was a bad king. He was a great king who ended on a bad note. The, the whole symphony was beautiful, but the last few notes were very bad. But the symphony that came after him was very brief. It was one of those songs that just well, just lasted three months. That's all his reign lasted. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Now Pharaoh Necho put him in prison at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Then Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in place of his father Josiah and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Pharaoh took Jehoahaz and went to Egypt and he died there. The reforms of King Josiah were wonderful, but verse 32 tells us that they were not long lasting. His own son Jehoahaz did not follow in his godly ways. He only reigned for three months. He was not the oldest son of King Josiah, but when he was taken away as a captive, it says there in verse 33 that Pharaoh Necho put him in prison. See, after the defeat of King Josiah in battle, Pharaoh was able to dominate Judah and make it effectively a vassal kingdom. 
and a buffer against the growing Babylonian empire. He imposed upon the kingdom of Judah a tribute and put on the throne of Judah a puppet king, a brother of Jehoahaz, who he named Jehoiakim. So now we're on our third king already, right? Josiah, Jehoahaz, and now Jehoiakim in verse 35. So Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give money according to the command of Pharaoh, and he exacted the silver and gold from the people of the land, from everyone according to his assessment, to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebdua, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Jehoiakim was nothing more than a puppet king presiding over a vassal kingdom under the Egyptians. He imposed heavy taxes on the people and he paid the money to the Egyptians as required. And as it says in verse 37, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, Jehoiakim, like his brother Jehoahaz, did not follow the godly example of his father, Josiah. Let me read to you a passage from Jeremiah chapter 36, starting at verse 22 where it describes the great ungodliness of Jehoiakim, how he even burned a scroll of God's word. It says here, um, And you shall say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Thus says the Lord, You have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written it in the hand of the king of Babylon? Will certainly come and destroy this land and call man and beast to cease from here. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have no one to sit on the throne of David and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. That was God's promise of judgment against Jehoiakim. So, do you get the geopolitical situation? The empire of Babylon is rising. The empire of Assyria is falling and allied with them is the the kingdom of Egypt. And caught right in the middle of these three world empires is little kingdom of Judah. Well, now, verse 1 of chapter 24. In his days, that is the days of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian Empire, was concerned with Judah because of its strategic position in relation to the empires of Egypt and Assyria. Therefore, it was important to him to conquer Judah and make it a subject kingdom. As it says there in verse 1, his vassal, securely loyal to Babylon. See, Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem because the pharaoh of Egypt had invaded Babylon. In response, the young prince Nebuchadnezzar defeated the Egyptians at Carchemish, one of the great battles of the ancient world. And then he pursued the fleeing army of the Egyptians all the way down to the Sinai. Along the way, or maybe on the way back from that battle, he subdued Jerusalem because Jerusalem had been loyal to the pharaoh of Egypt. This happened in the year 605 B.C., And it was the first, but not the last, encounter between Nebuchadnezzar and Jehoiakim. There would be two later invasions. 
This specific attack is documented in the Babylonian Chronicles, which was a collection of tablets discovered as early as 1887 and held in the British Museum. You know, one of the most fun you can most fun things you can do is go to the British Museum and see some of these amazing artifacts that they have that are connected to biblical history. And the Babylonian Chronicles, which record this invasion of Nebuchadnezzar, specifically mentioned right here in 2 Kings 24, you can see it on display there in the British Museum, one of my favorite places in the whole world, the British Museum, a wonderful, wonderful place. Anyway, in those documents, Nebuchadnezzar's presence in Judah is documented and clarified. Interestingly, when the Babylonian Chronicles were finally published in 1956, they gave us first-rate, detailed political, military information about the first year of Neb- first ten years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And so, even though they were discovered in 1887, it took about 70 years until they were made public and they had been researched carefully. And so, there's archaeological evidence that tells us all about these things. But anyway, Nebuchadnezzar made these attacks, but notice, it says at the end of verse 1, then he turned and rebelled against him. When Nebuchadnezzar had to return to Babylon suddenly, why did he have to return to Babylon suddenly? Because his father died. His father died, and who was going to be the next king of Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar himself. And so he traveled 500 miles in two weeks. That was remarkable speed for travel in that day. And so he only had time to take with him from Jerusalem a few choice captives, hostages, if you will. Daniel went with Nebuchadnezzar in 605 BC. He went with Nebuchadnezzar in this first encounter between Nebuchadnezzar and Jerusalem. He took a few treasures from the temple. He took a few hostages, but he couldn't stay long because he had to race back to secure his throne. And while he was away... What does it say? Jehoiakim, at the end of verse 1, he turned and rebelled against him. When Nebuchadnezzar had to make this hurried return to Babylon, Jehoiakim took advantage of his absence and he rebelled against him. So, surely God would bless that, right? No. Look at verse 2. And the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, and bands of the people of Ammon. He sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servants, the prophets. Surely at the commandment of the Lord, this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done because of the sins of Manasseh, excuse me, because of all that he had done and also because of the innocent blood which he had shed, for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. You would think that God would honor the Judean independence movement, right? But he did not. God sent against Jehoiakim many adversaries because he was a patriot of the kingdom of Judah, but not a man submitted to God. So Syrians, Moabites, the people of Ammon, all of them came not only because they were instructed to do so by Nebuchadnezzar, but as it says in verse 3, surely at the commandment of the Lord this came upon Judah. You can just imagine, Jehoiakim sees the armies of the Babylonians leave. Bye-bye, Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, we're safe now. Thank you. We're delivered. 
and then the attacks keep coming. Why? Because again, his heart was not turned towards the Lord. He was a patriot for the kingdom of Judah, but he was not a man submitted to God. You see, many people in the days of Jehoiakim believed that it was God's will to deliver them from their enemies and to preserve an independent Judah. But that was not God's will. God's will was to bring Judah into judgment, knowing that they had not genuinely repented and they would not. The best thing for Judah to do would be to submit to this will of God. And this is interesting. That's what Jeremiah told them to do. Jeremiah was the unpatriotic prophet. Everybody's saying, yes, free Judah, free Judah. Yes, an independent Judah. We've got a battle against the Babylonians. We've got a ba-. And Jeremiah was the one saying, you know what, friends? I hate to tell you this. I genuinely do. But this is God's will. We have sinned. We haven't repented. And God knows we won't repent. What we need to do is submit to the judgment of God instead of fighting it. And the judgment of God was going to come upon Judah, if you notice there in verse 4, because of the innocent blood which he had shed. This tells us that one of the great sins of Manasseh, again, this was the grandfather of Jehoiakim. One of the great sins of Manasseh was that he persecuted the godly of his day. And because of that, God was going to bring judgment upon the kingdom of Judah. Verse 5. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the king of Judah? So Jehoiakim rested with his fathers. Then Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come out of his land anymore, for the king of Babylon had taken all that had belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Okay, this is our fourth king of the evening. We started with Josiah. Then we had Jehoiahaz. Then we had Jehoiakim. Now we have Jehoiakin. And the end of the acts of Jehoiakim ended very badly. Second Chronicles chapter 36 verse 6 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar intended to take Jehoiakim to Babylon bound in bronze fetters. Yet Jeremiah 22 tells us that Jehoiakim, the previous one, would be disgracefully burned outside of Jerusalem. And it seems that Nebuchadnezzar's intention was to take him to Babylon, but he was never able to do it. And instead, he was killed and burned right outside of Jerusalem. But verse 7 tells us something about the geopolitical struggle, doesn't it? You see, in this great struggle between Egypt and Assyria and Babylon, by the time we come to verse 7, who's the winner? Babylon. Babylon is the new world empire. Nebuchadnezzar had defeated Egypt. The Assyrians were gone. The Babylonians were the dominant power in that part of the world. So, what about the reign of Jehoiakim? Verse 8. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem three months. And his mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. Too bad he wasn't like his grandfather, the godly Josiah. 
Instead, Jehoiakim, verse 8 tells us, that he was 18 years old when he became king. And, and it tells us that he did, in verse 9, evil in the sight of the Lord. He carried on the traditions of the wicked kings of Judah, not the godly kings of Judah. Uh, verse 10. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city as his servants were besieging it. Then Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother, his servants, his princess, and his officers, went out to the king of Babylon, and the king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, took him prisoner. Okay, so you get the picture here? This grandson of King Josiah is now taken as a prisoner to Babylon in the second attack that Nebuchadnezzar makes against Jerusalem. The first attack was when Daniel and his friends were taken away. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar had to leave in a hurry because his father had died. Now, because Judah was rebelling again, he comes back again and he surrounds Jerusalem and he takes the king of Judah as a prisoner away. You see, he didn't want any more rebellions like the father of Jehoiakim, whose name was Jehoiakim, that he had done. No more rebellions. He took him prisoner. And like his rebellious father, God allowed Jehoiakim to be taken back as a bound captive. Although it doesn't seem that his father was actually taken back. Just the intention was there. So look at verse 13 now. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord. And the treasures of the king's house. And he cut in pieces all the articles of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. Also, he carried into captivity all Jerusalem, all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and smiths. Nothing remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried Jehoiakim captive to Babylon. Then the king's mother, the king's wives, his officers, and the mighty of the land, he carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the valiant men, 7,000, and craftsmen and smiths, 1,000, all who were strong and fit for war, these the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. He wanted to cripple this rebellious kingdom of Judah. And so it says there in verse 13 that first he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. On this second attack against Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar took whatever valuables remained in the temple or in the royal palaces of Jerusalem. What you have to understand is that the fall of Jerusalem in the kingdom of Judah at this time, it didn't happen in one day. It didn't happen in one battle. It happened in three successive invasions. The first one that we saw before, the one that we're looking at right now, and then a final one that will come before we're done tonight. And so what did he do? Verse 13, he cut in pieces all the articles of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made. This tells us what happened to all the furniture and precious thing of Solomon's temple. Some ancient traditions tell us that the Ark of the Covenant was hid by the prophet Jeremiah before this, and so that it was not among the things that were taken away uh, and taken back to Babylon. Maybe so. There are some people who believe that the Ark of the Covenant still exists today somewhere, and maybe it does, that it was hidden somewhere by the prophet Jeremiah. There's no way to know for certain. But I can tell you what happened to the other elements of the second of this first temple, of Solomon's temple. 
what happened to the beautiful menorah and the table of showbread and the altar of incense and the laver outside and all those incredible things that Solomon had made and that had existed for hundreds of years of Solomon's temple, now they were carried away to Babylon. And not only that, cut in pieces. They weren't put in some museum in Babylon. They melted it for scrap metal. They melted it for whatever they were going to use it for. It says there in verse 14, that none remained except the poorest people of the land. Notice this. Nebuchadnezzar did not only take the material treasures of Judah, but he also took the human treasures. Anyone with any skills or any abilities was taken captive to Babylon. And so he took away everybody who could build a strong society that might rebel against the king of Babylon. You see, with only the poor and the unskilled people of the land remaining, Nebuchadnezzar could assume that Jerusalem would cause no further trouble. But just to make sure, look what he does in verse 17. Then the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place, and he changed his name to Zedekiah. This is our fifth king of Judah that we study tonight, the fifth and the final. Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakin, and now Zedekiah. Verse 17 tells us that since Nebuchadnezzar had completely humbled Judah, he put a king on the throne who he thought would submit to Babylon. He chose an uncle of Jehoiakim, who was a brother to Jehoiakim. So notice this. This is now an uncle of the king who was taken away into captivity into Babylon. He's not a descendant of him. He's an uncle. So notice where the line of David stops. It stops with Jehoiakim, the man who was taken away with all his family in this great exile. And then he changed his name to Zedekiah. By the way, do you know what the name Zedekiah means? It means the Lord is righteous. And the righteous judgment of God would soon be seen against Judah. Do you think that they've been judged enough? They haven't yet. There's more to come. Look at it here in verse 18. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He also did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah, that he finally cast them out from his presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 11 through 20, tells us more about the evil of Zedekiah. Specifically, Zedekiah did not listen to Jeremiah or the other messengers of God. Instead, they mocked and disregarded the message from Jeremiah. These were perhaps the most important days of the prophet Jeremiah's ministry. But because he didn't listen to the prophets, because the king Zedekiah didn't listen, verse 20 tells us that God finally cast them out from his presence. God's patience and long-suffering had finally run its course, and he allowed, no, he even instigated the conquering of the kingdom of Judah. 
And so as it says there in verse 20, Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now again, he thought he was doing it for great patriotic reasons. He was another patriot for the kingdom of Judah, but not a man submitted to God. You see, Jeremiah tells us that there were many false prophets in these days who preached a message of victory and triumph to Zedekiah. There were many false prophets who told Zedekiah, rebel against the kingdom of Babylon, rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. You'll win. God will bless it. God is for you. And he believed them. Jeremiah, he was the dark voice in all of this. Jeremiah and other godly prophets tried to convince Zedekiah that this judgment was the righteous judgment of God and the best thing that they could do was simply submit to it. But they wouldn't listen to them. For example, Jeremiah chapter 32 verses 1 through 5 tells us that Jeremiah clearly told Zedekiah, you will not succeed in your campaign to rebel against the king of Babylon. So you know what Zedekiah did? He arrested Jeremiah and he imprisoned him for this. But the prophet steadfastly clung to his message. You see, this man Zedekiah, again, he was a patriotic man for the kingdom of Judah, but he was not a man with the heart of God. Chapter 25, the last chapter of the book. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it. And they built a siege wall against it all around. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Now, do I need to remind you about the practice of the ancient siege? They would surround a city, allow nothing to come in or out, and they would just starve the city. And this is exactly what had happened. Now, again, remember what's going on in these days. All these false prophets are supporting King Zedekiah. Hey, the Lord will deliver you. The Lord will conquer. But they were false prophets. What they should have done was listen to the godly prophets like Jeremiah who said, I know this is hard to understand. But God wants you to submit to this judgment because the nation deserves it. So when the siege wall, verse 1, was built all around the city of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar was just using the common method of attack and starving out the city. And then verse 3 tells us that the famine became so severe, well, it was the intended goal of the siege to starve them out They were at the point of victory over Jerusalem. This, of course, is the third attack that we see of the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, against the city of Jerusalem. Verse 4. Then the city wall was broken through, and all the men of war fled at night by way of the gate between two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were still encamped all around against the city. And the king went by way of the plain. So they tried to sneak out. But look what happened. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and they overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah and they pronounced judgment on him. And they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him with bronze fetters and took him to Babylon. 
You see, it was at a desperate point of the siege of Jerusalem. Zedekiah made a last chance effort to escape the grip of the nearly completely successful siege. They planned a secret breakthrough through the city walls and the siege lines of the Babylonians. They used a diversionary tactic. They escaped. They made it a considerable ways away through the plains of Jericho. But even though they made it a considerable distance away from Jerusalem, they were eventually captured and the promised judgment of Jeremiah and the other faithful prophets came upon Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. You have to say, think about those plains of Jericho. Think about the place where Joshua and the people of God first set foot upon the promised land and where they came in full of faith and saw the city walls of Jericho fall down as they trusted God to do a work that none of them could do. And because of their obedience and because of their faith, God won a great victory for Israel by conquering the toughest city, the mightiest city in in all of Canaan at that time, the city of Jericho, and God won the victory for Israel because of their faith. But now, after sustained generations of disobedience and unbelief, now in the very plains of Jericho, the king of Judah, Zedekiah, is hunted down like an animal and brought before Nebuchadnezzar. And did you see what it said there in verse 7? That's tough business. They bring the king, Zedekiah, before Nebuchadnezzar. And they bring the sons of Zedekiah before the Judean king. And they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his own eyes. Can you see the king of Judah restrained in his anger, watching his own sons hacked to death before his eyes? And then to make the point even more clear, to say, that's the last sight you will ever see, Zedekiah. At that moment, they gouged out his eyes. So the rest of his life, he would remember the last thing he ever saw with those eyes, the murder of his own sons. The Babylonians were not known to be as cruel as the Assyrians who had conquered the northern kingdom 150 years earlier, but they were still experts in cruelty in their own right. They made certain that the last sight that King Zedekiah ever saw was the murder of his own son. And then he spent the rest of his days in darkness. You know, the prophet Ezekiel made a very mysterious prophecy about Zedekiah. He said, shortly before the fall of Jerusalem, about Zedekiah, thus says the Lord, I will also spread my net over him, and he shall be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon to the land of the Chaldeans, yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. So was he carried away to Babylon? Yes. Did he die there? Yes. Did he ever see it? No, he did not. So it fulfilled Ezekiel's prophecy, and with his eyes put out and bound in these fetters, He was carried off to the court of the conqueror as a symbol of the people who had rebelled against God and been broken in pieces. You know, his eyes were put out on that day before Nebuchadnezzar, but his mind and his spirit were put out long before that. 
Verse 8. And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebzaduran, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house, all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem all around. Solomon's great temple was now destroyed. 424 years it had stood, and now it was destroyed. It would stay a ruin for many years, for some 70 years, until it was humbly rebuilt by the returning exiles in the days of Ezra. Yeah, they rebuilt the temple. They they didn't have the equipment, they didn't have the money, they didn't have the resources to rebuild it like it was in the days of Solomon. But they rebuilt it. That temple stood for 424 years. Now it was gone. But not only that, verse 10 tells us that they broke down the walls of Jerusalem all around. The physical security of Jerusalem was gone. Without walls, a city was defenseless. Without walls, nothing valuable could be kept in a city. A city was nothing without its walls. And they would stay that way until the days of the returning exiles in the days of Nehemiah. Remember that. Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. Ezra rebuilt the temple. Verse 11. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away captive the rest of the people who remained in the city and the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon with the rest of the multitude. But the captain of the guard left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers, The bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord and the carts in the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried their bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the spoons, and all the bronze utensils with which the priests ministered. The fire pans and the basins, the things of solid gold and solid silver, the captain of the guard took away. The two pillars, one sea, the carts which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all the articles was beyond measure. The height of one pillar was 18 cubits, and the capital of it was of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits, and the network and the pomegranates all around the capital were all of bronze. The second pillar was the same with a network. This was the third major wave of captivity, taking the remainder of the people, all except for the very poorest of the land. And now the second trip... Okay, the first trip, he took Daniel and some of the choice captives. The second trip, he took the gold and the silver of the temple. The third trip, he took the bronze and the remaining gold and silver. They took it back to Babylon as captives. Verse 18, And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three doorkeepers, He also took out of the city an officer who had charge of the men of war, five men of the king's close associates who were found in the city, the chief recruiting officer of the army who mustered the people of the land, and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. So Nebuchadnezzar, captain of the guard, took these and brought them back to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Then the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. Thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. 
the last leaders of the rebellion under Zedekiah were killed, Judah was completely defeated. They had possessed this land for some 860 years. I mean, from the time of Joshua. They took it by faith and obedience, but they lost it through idolatry and sin. You know what's notable about this whole story? How passionless it is. There's no expression of sorrow on behalf of the author, is it? There's no expression of feeling. It's as if he's writing out an accounting ledger. Do you know why? You see, because he's just saying, these are the facts. This is what the people of God deserve. If you want the weeping, if you want the groaning, turn to the book of Lamentations. That was written during this period. And so this nation was called into a particular position of honor. But because of their disobedience, after 860 years dwelling in the land, they were cast out of the land. Verse 22. Then he made Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, governor over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had left. Now, when all the captains of the army, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah governor, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah, Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, Johanan, son of Kera, Sariah, the son of Tanumeth, the Neophathite, and Jazathan, the son of Machathite, and they and their men. And Gedaliah took an oath before them and their men and said to them, Do not be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will be well with you. And that this man Gedaliah is interesting. He was a good and godly man. He was a friend of the prophet Jeremiah. And he had the reputation of being gentle and generous. And so he gets together with the remaining poor people of the land. And he says, listen, dwell in the land, serve the king of Babylon, and it will be well with you. Now that might seem unpatriotic, right? It might seem perhaps ungodly, but it was the right thing to do. This was a situation of deserved and unstoppable judgment. And so what should you do? You should just accept it. Saying, Lord, we're under your hand of judgment. We're going to endure through it until you send a season of blessing again. You see, it was the right thing to do because even though it was hard to accept, it was true that the Babylonians were doing the work of God. Isn't that hard for us to understand? The Babylonians were doing the work of God in bringing this judgment upon the deserving kingdom of Judah. So in this situation, to resist the Babylonians was to resist God. It was better to humble oneself and submit to the judgment of God brought through the Babylonians. Now, if this seems troubling to you, I don't blame you. This was the exact same question that troubled the prophet Habakkuk so much. You see, Habakkuk knew that Judah was wicked. He knew that Judah deserved judgment. But you know what he also knew? He knew that the Babylonians were even worse. God, I know we deserve judgment, but how come you're taking a worse nation than us to come and judge us? He deals with these difficult questions in the book of Habakkuk. But basically what God says is, Habakkuk, don't worry about it. I know what I'm doing. One day I will judge the Babylonians also. 
But understand this principle of God's judgment. He may use a more wicked nation to bring judgment to a wicked nation. Well, Gedaliah gave them good advice, but look what became of it. Verse 25. But it happened in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elashayim, of the royal family, came with ten men and struck and killed Gedaliah, all the Jews, as well as the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. And all the people, small and great, and the captains of the army, arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. Gedaliah told the remaining people of Judah to submit to the Babylonians. But because of this, he was assassinated as a traitor to the resistance movement against the Babylonians. And so the the revolutionaries, so to speak, they assassinated Gedaliah, many members of his government, and then they fled to Egypt. Now, I got to ask you, isn't this interesting? Where do they go to? Egypt. Back to where the people of God were delivered from so many years before. Isn't that a tragedy right there? You see, going to Egypt was worse than submitting to the judgment of God that was brought through the Babylonians. Verse 27. Now it came to pass, in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, that Evel Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a more prominent seat than those kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim changed from his prison garments, and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given to him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. Now that ends... The book of Second Kings. You see, Nebuchadnezzar w- w- was not the last king of Babylon. He died and somebody succeeded him. And when his son came and succeeded him, he said, you know, I remember that king of Judah. I'm going to take him out of prison and I'm going to give him a nice place to live. And he's going to have to live with me here in Babylon, but I'll make things nice for him. Jehoiakim, as we mentioned before, the last of the line of David is released from prison. He hears kind words and he's given a prominent seat. Now, what do we make of this? You know what this is? The writer of Second Kings is trying desperately to give us a glimmer of hope in the midst of this great darkness. You see, the final words of the book of 2 Kings describe small kindnesses and blessings being given in the worst circumstances. Judah was still depopulated. The people of God were still exiled. The king of Judah was still a prisoner in Babylon, and the temple was still destroyed. Yet, looking for even a small note of grace and mercy as evidence of the returning favor of God the divine historian noted that King Jehoiakim began to receive better treatment in Babylon. So he spoke kindly to him, and he received this kindness. Listen, I think this is a lesson for us. Whatever small evidences you have of the favor of God, cherish them. Sometimes we go through dark times in our life. 
Sometimes we feel that we're under the discipline or the correction of God. Well, listen, when he gives you reasons to be hopeful, even small ones, seize upon them. Oh, Lord, are you turning your face of favor back towards me? Thank you, Lord. I know that I deserve that chastisement. But, Lord, thank you for your kindness as it returns to me. Well, the history of the people of God in the land of Canaan would continue from this point, of course. They faced some 70 years of exile in front of them until they would return to the land in the days of Ezra and the later time of Daniel and Nehemiah and all the rest. But we see, God has his principles of dealing with men. God is righteous. God is merciful. God is forgiving. It's our place to turn to the Lord with all of our heart. How different it would have been if the nation would have truly turned to God in the days of Josiah. Remember when we began there five kings ago? If they would have truly turned with all of their heart in the days of Josiah, I think this day of judgment from the Babylonians would have eventually come because God said it would come, but it would have been long delayed. Instead, it came much sooner than it had to because of the rebellion of the people. Well, I think that should be our prayer. Lord, we want a deep work in our heart, not a superficial one, not a surface one. You can have a surface revival. You can have a surface reformation. We don't want that. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this book of uh, Second Kings, Lord. How we see you working through the great kings and through the terrible kings. We see your sovereign hand through it all. But Lord, we see how your work with man needs to go deep within the heart. Not to merely be a turning to you in a shallow way, not only in pretense, but in the true depths of the heart. Lord, that's what we want to be for you. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your work in the lives of these ancient people. But Lord, how it shows you how you work in our lives today. And more than anything, Lord, it shows us the greatness of our King Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us a perfect King. And we want to submit gladly to the reign of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.